This podcast is brought to you by Upcase. Improve your development skills by completing coding exercises that are peer-reviewed by real humans. Learn more at upcase.com. Giant Robot Smashing Into Other Giant Robots. Hello, everybody, and welcome to the Giant Robots Smashing Into Other Giant Robots podcast. My name is Ben Orenstein, and I'm here today with my friend John Norman. Hey, John. Hey. How's it going? It's going great. Uh, so you work at Iora Health. I do. Uh, which is a former ThoughtBot client. It is, and we should talk about that. I'd love to. So, so you, uh, how old was the company when uh, we were working together? It was brand new. So I, I actually have this weird off by one uh, kind of dyslexia, uh, and which messes me up for time zones too. But um, I want to say end of two, very end of 2010, Iora started to become a real thing, and early. 2011, and now I'm saying this, and I'm almost sure I am off by one, but that's okay, Close right? Close enough. Um, so uh, the company was founded, uh, Chris McCown, uh, chairman, Rashika Fernandez-Pule, uh, CEO, James McElhenney, CTO, and very rapidly, James knew that he had a lot of work, and he called me up. I had just moved to Minnesota, and he said, uh, I need help. Uh, I know you're free because you've just moved, and can you help us with some contracting? Hmm. So I did that, and one of the first things that was on our list was, um, how are we going to build an engineering team? Um, and then we had a lot of other work to do for about six months. company was incorporated. Um, James enticed me to become a regular employee which I resisted a little bit at first. Yeah, I'm surprised that Yeah, that well, the gotcha. deal was I had worked at a medical startup before, and I was really concerned that doctors can be kind of problematic because they're inevitably the smartest person in the room. But sometimes you need them to co- co- cooperate with you and learn about your agile process, for example. And they're yeah. like, what, al- what do you mean agile process? So, um, so I was kind of resistant, but then I met the CEO. And Rashika is just an incredible person, um, a real thought leader in the area of how to do primary care in North America. Mm-hmm. And I was just smitten. And there's a big article by Atul Gawande in The New Yorker that described our prototype practice in New Jersey. And that was also big for me. Oh, so, interesting. Yeah. So I came I on. I should read that. I love his writing. You would love it. It's, a, it's called The Hot Spotters. Okay. I highly that. recommend it. But um, one of the things that we were really wringing our hands over is how do we build a team? Who do we hire first? And we also were really concerned about methodology and about process. And so we thought, you know, if we hire a team that's really dedicated to Agile um, and we also can tell new hires it's that team's way or the highway, Mm. we can have this real acceleration of what we're trying to do. So Mm -hmm. if there's a question about what software we should use for um, card management, whether we should do scoring, um, should we be doing design in a week prior to development, those kinds of questions. We said, let's let our partner help us. And Mm. it's sort of their way or the highway. And and I think that was one of the magic bullets for us making a lot of progress early on. So I think we started with ThoughtBot in earnest of June, uh, six months after these kinds of early founding moments. Mm-hmm. And we, I think we had your A-team. And we had uh, Harold Jimenez and um, I'm trying to remember who else was in there. Uh, Jason Morrison. Yeah, I Jason was, was really key. All-star. Yeah. And those two alone, um, it was great. And, and you know, like – I think a lot of software developers five or six years ago paid lip service to certain kinds of agile, mm-hmm. but seeing the ThoughtBot indoctrination to test first, I mean, literally I saw Harold um, write a spec that said there needs to be a constant representing something, mm-hmm. and it failed, and he put in the constant. It's like, yeah, you're testing your constants, okay. Uh, then he deleted the test because it was mm-hmm. kind of irrelevant. But yeah. uh, 
But that was pretty eye-popping. And, you know, Harold also had hit his uh, return key incredibly hard. Yes. And I also was really impressed with that. So. <laughs> I have so, such strong memories of that too. Yeah, wham. Yeah, know, so. it would be like a da, 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 bam. Yeah, da, 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 bam. Yeah, you know, so you got into the... a really good rhythm. Yep, yeah. totally. That's so interesting. I was reminded of that quote, which is something like, you know, a good plan executed violently today is better than like the perfect plan a week from now. Yeah, I would buy that. Yeah, and so like it, it didn't matter that like, no one would even say that our process was perfect, but no. it was at least good. It right? was a process. It was a process, and being able to just focus on. Uh, moving the app forward and making it better and solving right. problems versus debating like how do we check style and like should the designer do this or should we do this? That's right. And you know, I think Dan Croak, if he's listening, uh, he would probably remember some pretty intense arguments that we had around process and getting things done. They were very productive. And mm-hmm. in retrospect, you know, time heals all wounds. You know, we kind of look back at that as a kind of really rosy period of our software development. So thank you, Thoughtbot. And you know, there are other companies that could have, I think helped us you know pivotal you know um but but we were really happy that's great uh, how long was that uh, initial engagement the engagement was about six months okay and we um concluded with a great dinner over at um catalyst in cambridge Mm -hmm. and it was really celebratory and then we moved on uh building out our own team if i remember that was in the days of the, the app was in backbone is that right it was in in fact much of our uh, staff app, which is so um, so. Iora is a healthcare company. We're not a technolo- primarily a technology company. Mm-hmm. So we own and operate primary care practices for a variety of sponsors. And if you look at our website, you can see who those sponsors are. But they're people like Dartmouth Culinary Union in Las Vegas, et cetera, et cetera. Mm-hmm. And then we have some really big partners too. And to the question, which was about... Um, well, actually, let's, let's stand this for a second. Okay, uh, sure. More about how, what the Iora model looks like. Yeah, so we changed three things fundamentally. We changed the payment model, we changed the delivery model, and we changed the tech model. And so what that means is uh, delivery, uh, we have health coaches. So when you have an appointment at an Iora practice, you will see your doctor, but a lot of the nuts and bolts of getting work done on yourself and your body and so forth is handled and coordinated by a health coach. Mm. And at Iora, the health coaches typically come from the community. So if the practice isn't a predominantly Hispanic community, the health coach will speak Spanish. Mm. Uh, If you have issues with diabetes, it may be that your health coach has had diabetes. I mean, we really try and align things that way. So changing the delivery model is a huge deal. Why is that good? Is because it frees up the doctor to focus on the heavier things, basically? Right. I mean, it means that the doctor can really focus on doctor things. Mm -hmm. And doctors love to have relationships with patients but, you know, sometimes it can help to have a specialist. And, you know, like a lot of um, industries, there's also sort of uh, some weights going on with, uh, you know, where you spend your money. And health mm-hmm. coaches, um, they're not trained as medical personnel typically. They can be. But, um, but you know, doctors are expensive. And so we're trying to rework yep. the kind of hydraulics around, uh, you know, how the roles are distributed. So delivery model, that's a biggie. The payment model. Just one more thing yeah, on that. Like, yeah, I feel sure. like I've, I've seen a lot of evidence indicating that it's some of these early and fairly simple interventions that have a huge impact on, on health outcomes. That's right. So prevention. Yeah. Uh, you, you, know, you really want people to come into the practice the appropriate amount, which is frequently more than just seeing your doctor once a year if you're not a young, very young person. Right. So you so, can catch things early that's and, right. and address that's them right. when they're, they're minor. Yeah. I mean, you know, if you read um, a book like uh, The Healing of America by T.R. Reed, mm-hmm. probably the single best book you can read about how healthcare 
healthcare is organized across the world. He has case studies hmm. on Germany, France. He kind of goes into practices all over the world and says, hey, my arm's all screwed up. I can't raise it very far. And, you know, in America, they say, well, we'll re- replace your whole shoulder. Mm. That'll cost you $80,000. Right. Uh, you know, you go to France and they say, there's nothing wrong with your shoulder. In England, they say, there's nothing wrong with your shoulder, but there's this really great specialist who might be able to help you. Mm. In India, they say, well, we have this great diet and uh, we'd like you to have massage for two weeks. Hmm. And so, you know, he kind of talks about this. But in the course of that, he mentions, if I'm not mistaken, that in Japan, you may see your primary care physician 13 times a year. And we wonder why their outcomes are so great. I mean, part of it is they're getting early warning on all the sorts of things that can go wrong. Yeah. So, yeah, prevention. And, uh, you know, in an IORA practice, there's a lot of group events. So you might learn about your diet. You might learn how to go shopping. A lot of people don't understand that what's in the center of the store is filled with chemicals and processing and so forth. So, yeah. So delivery model is is key to changing healthcare in North America. Interesting. That frequency sounds really impactful. It does. Now, if you're young, you know, actually don't come to the doctor that frequently. You're healthy. Sure. You know. Nothing's nothing's breaking down yet. Right. It's it's interesting how how much focus we have on fixing the major problems after they've manifested themselves as very obvious serious problems versus mm-hmm. a low grade harder to detect thing. I have a personal example actually, which is I went and got a blood test uh, with this organization called Wellness FX, mm-hmm. which is like you can do your own order your own blood tests effectively. Um, and so it turns out I had elevated uh, glucose and uh, a family history of diabetes. And so if you have elevated glucose, you want to make some dietary... There's actually some fairly straightforward dietary changes you can make that will help you not become diabetic. Right. And I guess the standard testing protocol from my primary care physician doesn't call for glucose tests until you're 40 or something. Yeah. And so he would have happily eventually treated me for diabetes at great expense and, you know, lower quality of life to me, but wouldn't have ordered the $20, hey, what's your glucose levels uh, test at, you know, 32. That's right. um, Which is, you know, not so great. Right. So I had to take it into my own hands in this case, but it sounds like that this is kind of what Iora is about. Yeah, is, and the health coach really intervenes yeah. significantly in that manner. Nice. So there's, there's delivery? Payment. So payment. Um, a lot of healthcare payments in North America are fee-for-service. So you have something done, and there's a bill that's dealt with by the insurance company, but there's huge amounts of paperwork to manage that. So we charge our sponsors a per-patient-per-month fee. And then we try and manage the patient as best we can based on that amount of money that comes in. So um, now it happens that actually we do generate a lot of the paperwork that understands the exact procedures and diagnoses that are happening, but it's not tied into our billing. And so, so that's, that's a major distinction. And I am not you know, the CFO or our VP of Accountable Care. So I'm not really the person to go into a lot of detail on that. But that's a major um, differentiator between us and the rest of the world. So most places I would, uh, like if I'm uh, General Motors and people go in and they they go for treatment, you you charge per treatment right Mm -hmm. then and there. Mm -hmm. This is a different model where it says, like, give us X hundred dollars per month per person, regardless of what's going on. That's right. And we're going to make sure that the total healthcare costs are managed as as a group. That's right. Interesting. Well, that's sort of a nice incentive for you. It is. That aligns incentives, I guess. It does, exactly. So if the patients are healthy, they're essentially costing less, and then then we make make more money. Right, as opposed to a hospital or a normal doctor who, like, they make their most money when you are the least healthy. Right, and, 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 you know, some of these distinctions are a little invidious, and I don't think you want to make too much of the generalizations, but 
uh, you know, it's kind of like the Agile Manifesto. You know, we're taking a path in one direction where the rest of the industry is taking a different path. So we, we want to kind of lump up these payments so that we're not constantly looking at the minutia of the billing. Mm. So there's, it's not only about improving care options, but think about it. You know, if you're going to, if you're going to design our, your own tech stack, which is part of what we've done, um, simplifying the problem helps a lot. So mm-hmm. simplify the business problem, simplify the software problem. Gotcha. So that was a uh, delivery and care. So uh, the three legs of the stool: yeah. uh, delivery, payment model, right. and then last is tech. And maybe somewhat controversially, but um, a few years ago, Rashika Fernando Pule and um, Neil Patel, who's one of our medical directors, they wrote a uh, journal article complaining about the efficacy of electronic medical record systems for primary care. And they said there's all this stuff that they do wrong. They don't understand about collaboration inside of the practice between health coaches and doctors. So at, you know, so what we did is we decided to build our own electronic medical record system. It is unfortunately uh, named ISIS. That was a good name five years ago. Now it's a little problematic. We thought about suing the terrorists for, you know, infringing on our brand or something like that. But uh, so ISIS is a full-blown EMR that is focused on primary care, mm. and it's a lot of software. So it started off, as you can imagine, kind of monolithic Rails application, and now it's broken into a lot of services. Interesting. So what what does the tech stack look like, roughly? So Ruby, Rails, a lot of the original client software is was is in Backbone, and there's tons of Backbone still in our staff app. But um, more recently, all the new development is in Ember. Hmm. And then there's some back-end processes. Uh, we've got a little bit of Go here and there. DevOps automation is done with Puppet and Ansible. So it's kind of the usual suspects, I think. Mm-hmm. Have you enjoyed working in that tech stack? I love it. Uh, you know, I actually just had to do some Python recently. Mm-hmm. Uh, and we have this uh, product called Okta for identity management. And uh, and the, the good SDK that they have is for Python. And I'm kind of writing and I'm like, ah. Oh. Why do I have to put this colon after a method signature? Mm. You know, it's like the little things that just drive you crazy. So I'm a, you know, crazy Ruby lover. And then uh, Ember, I dig as well. So mm-hmm. Backbone, not so much. Yeah. I think when we were working with you, we were doing like 100% Backbone work at the time or something. Yeah. Well, you had traje- trajectory. We had tra- yeah, we had our own Backbone products, and yeah. we were doing a ton of client work at Backbone, and we've moved away from that, I'd say. Yeah pretty thoroughly i don't yeah. think we're doing any now that i'm aware of so so thanks a lot yeah Thoughtbot. you know well you yeah. got a good process out of it yeah if if not you know a bunch of backbone code you have to maintain yeah hmm. so um it's big and um and then my role has shifted a lot over the years so i started off my title is ostensibly chief software architect which has something to do with the pragmatics of me being based in minnesota mm-hmm. and the rest of the team based in cambridge so james and i were like well what are we going to call john you know we're like well you know he's he's not going to be with the team so that kind of excludes certain kinds of at the time we thought managerial roles mm. So, and we knew that, you know, I love uh, patterns and software nerd, nerdism. So uh, that seemed appropriate. But I've also done tons of DevOps work, a lot of compliance work with defining how our applications work with regard to HIPAA. Mm-hmm. And then lately, um, I've been working a lot with the business and clinical intelligence team. So we have a data stack as well. Hmm. When you say HIPAA, what kind of emotion does that uh, bring up in you? So um, I think HIPAA is kind of great. Uh, if you read the the fine print, you start to learn that there's a lot of ways that health and human services 
has uh, a lot has common sense. So one of the things that you'll read about in the paper is how all email between patients and physicians has to be encrypted. But in their fact, uh, they have a frequently asked question which says, uh, what happens if a patient just emails me out of the blue? And they say, well, um, you can reply to that and you can include PHI in your email, um, protected health information, but if you think that the patient doesn't understand that the email is being sent back over an insecure channel, you should explain it to them. And I think that's pretty common sense, you know. Uh, so, so there's things that they allow with some caveats, and um, I, I think that's fairly reasonable. Mm. Um, part of the struggle of HIPAA is that the requirements are divided into so-called required and uh, addressable. So, for example, um, the idea that your hard disks have to be encrypted at rest, that's actually in the addressable section. So what you're supposed to do is do a risk analysis. And then if you believe that there are significant risks that your disk drives could be you know, yanked out of a data center or something like that, then you have to explain what additional security you have. It's pretty obvious that you should encrypt your drives. But because of the enormous cost uh, you know, for a whole industry to move in that direction, they describe that as addressable. So if you have a really good story around why maybe you don't have to uh, encrypt your drives, then you would explain that in your HIPAA policies. Hmm. So um, I'm not a HIPAA hater. Uh, I wish that the rules were sometimes a little more clear. Um, there are parts of PCI, if you've ever had to clear a credit card uh, yourself, they're much more rigid about specifying firewall rules and the you know ciphers and so forth. And HIPAA could use that in my view. But you know we want patient privacy to be protected, and HIPAA is a you know that's the point. So we mm-hmm. really. We really respect HIPAA. Hmm. How is it uh, being remote from the rest of the team? Well, it's really hard. Um, so I've been remote not only, um, you know, so my home is in the Twin Cities. My wife is a professor at McAllister College in St. Paul, and that's why we moved there. And so I've always been remote uh, with Iora, which is, in a way, is good. It means that we've always had a concern for best practices around remote communication. But I've also been based in Paris, and I've spent some time in Montreal. So I've had to, to kind of conduct work uh, over Google Hangouts or go to meeting or whatever um, all the time, mm. or pairing with Tmux or whatever it's going to be. So, um, well, you should ask more questions because this could go in so many different directions. But I, I think, you know, constant vigilance is the only way to get through a remote situation. Yeah. Really. Well, the thing that stood out to me was the fact that you're the only one on the dev team. So that's remote. changed a little bit. So um, we now have a small engineering team in Minnesota. So okay. uh, Trent Ogren and Joel Jensen are my colleagues there. So they're on the engineering team. Um, Brian Fitch is now in Florida. And Patrick Robertson is up in New Hampshire. So actually, we, we've had to accommodate more remote work. And as Iora has grown, we found that elsewhere in the company, uh, practice operations managers, they have to fly out and do work in our practices. So we have practices in Phoenix, uh, um, you know, Seattle, Las Vegas, all over the country. And so increasingly, uh, if we don't have good strategies around remote communication, we have a problem. So we're not at that point where the default communications pattern is over the wire, mm. but it's important. Yeah. And so so the fact that I've always been there kind of complaining a little bit about yeah. audio or video or whatever has been good for us, I think, in the long run. Mm-hmm. You're that the irritant in the oyster? Yeah. <laughs> around yeah. which the pearl has been formed? That, something like that. 
And then that's over, what you were getting at, I assume. Yeah. yeah. And then over time, you know, uh, when we started, we thought that it would be it would be a terrible mistake to manage people uh, when you're remote. But uh, I now have a lot of direct reports. Hmm both in the business and clinical intelligence stack and in engineering. Hmm. And we've just kind of evolved that way. And that's, that seems to work? It's okay. I think the best context for a one-on-one uh, meeting to catch up is face-to-face. Yeah, but, eating, um, eating one, or drinking something. As or drinking say. something. But once people know that, well, you're just remote, then people kind of come around to it. And I try and see – I come out to Boston at least once a month. So a lot of times I, I'll schedule a lot of one-on-ones when I'm in Boston. Mm-hmm. Like this one right here. Exactly. So it's all that's work in progress. Gotcha. You had said um, – one of the things we might talk about, and to use your words, is being an old programmer. Yeah. You're a grizzled veteran. It's kind of sick. I mean, um, the first computer I programmed in earnest with a, was an IBM 1130, which was a 16-bit machine, uh, wrote Fortran, um, little assembly. It was kind of cool because it had a, a loader that was a 12-bit computer, so you would actually could write little programs on Hollerith cards that could kind of control the way the card reader worked and stuff like that. Mm-hmm. But that was a great little machine. It had a Selectric typewriter, so you could drop an APL ball in. So if you wanted to write an A programming language, APL, you could do so. And um, the McAllister... So I actually lived in the Twin Cities a long time ago uh, from for junior high and high school. Mm-hmm. And I would go to McAllister College where my dad worked. This is before my wife actually got a job there uh, and used the computer there. Hmm. So the 1130 was was great. And then after that, uh, McAllister switched to a digital equipment corporation, uh, PDP 1170. And I taught myself Pascal and C. So this is all kind of happening in high school. So by the time I got to college uh, and showed up as someone who could program, I, I, I always had work. Mm-hmm. And uh, so those were kind of my early days. But now at the age of uh, 55, mm-hmm. uh, I saw a tweet by someone uh, – you know, recently someone's kind of mumbling, uh, hey, does anyone know any old developers, like, you know, older than 30? I'm thinking, oh, my God. <laughs> yeah. Um, and and also it's a little unusual that I've kind of – I've done my best to stay current. Uh-huh. Our industry, particularly on the startup side of things, is definitely trends towards young yeah. people, I think, right? So I, I, I was doing uh, – cons- as, as a ThoughtBot consultant, doing some work for Level Up. Mm-hmm. And I remember looking around stand-up one day and thinking, like, I'm probably the oldest person here, if yeah. not pretty close. And I was, like, 30 at the time. I know. It's crazy, isn't it? It is. So um, I would say that when you get to get to be older, the um, your ability to recall things out of short-term memory uh, – and, you know, even a kind of like there's a lot of stuff that I just had memorized when I was a kid mm-hmm. and that kind of falls away. So I kind of have to look at documentation a lot. Um, sometimes I'm slower to get up to speed on something. So when um, RSpec emerged, that that was like really took me a while to kind of get the hang of it. Mm-hmm. But, but then once I get it, it just kind of is there as a part of me, just like anything else. Uh, yeah. I mean, I feel like the strength that you get is just wisdom yeah so, like, something battle like scars that. And, and things that you remember from before and, and you know ability yeah. to take that r spec and then plug it into this giant graph of information you already have yeah and and there are times when stuff um just doesn't pass the sniff test with me hmm. and it's a little inscrutable so fortunately my colleagues will say like like what what are you talking about because i'll be saying i don't know about this api or um i think there's a little problem with this uh, thing and they'll be like what you know and then i then actually having to spell it out is good but you tend to get really good instincts yeah but the kind of um the solution to all this is constant retraining constantly learning new things um hunting out uh ancillary disciplines that might support you mm. um remembering that there's whole 
professional patterns around, say, data. So you might think that you're a programmer, but you really haven't taken a look at what's going on in the Hadoop world or whatever. Yep. And uh, get over there. You know, try it out. Take a class. Teach a class. Yeah. You taught the Rails class. I did. Oh, uh, yeah. At Harvard, Harvard Extension. Extension. And I'm doing it a little bit at the University of Minnesota. That's actually uh, the source of our connection originally. Yeah. yeah. Did, were you on one of my panels or something? No. So uh, I, my first Rails job was uh, working for Keith Morrison. Oh, wow. That's who, great. Who had TA'd uh, your Rails yeah. course. Yeah. Keith was fantastic. And he introduced, I think the two of us had a Boston Ruby. Yeah. That sounds about right. I've met a lot like of people at Boston Ruby courtesy of that Rails course. And there are other yeah. people around the Boston area like Liana Leahy. You know, she was in my class, you know, so. Yeah. yeah. And I, I'm, I met her through Boston Ruby as well. Cool. But yeah, we're, that's, our connection goes actually pretty far back to the beginning of my Ruby career, more or less. Very good. Yeah. So his, the stuff you, he picked up in your course and taught to others, he taught to me. And that's great. It's, yeah, all the, the knowledge has flown through the world. <sighs> so this, another thing on, this, on the, the old programming thing, I feel like there is probably rampant, latent age bias in our industry. Would you agree with that? Um, so I'm one of the lucky people who's never really seen it. Mm-hmm. Um, wow. And Oh, I'll tell you. So here's this is this is kind of worth thinking about. Is that um, I think I am um, completely unsuited. Uh, I don't know if I could work in a Fortune 500 company. Mm. Um, I have worked in very big organizations. So I used to teach at Ohio State, which has like fifty thousand people on campus. So I know a lot about how to deal with a big organization. But I started working for startups in 1999, and I've never looked back. And I love it. I mean, I just love the sort of zero to, you know, 500 people, uh, Mm -hmm. you know, kind of a hockey stick phase of a startup. Mm -hmm. And, you know, when you're engaged in something from the beginning and with a small team, no one cares how old you are. I mean, Mm. you're just so uh, nose down trying to get get stuff done. Uh, And so I'm very lucky. I've never had a whiff of anyone saying, uh, hey, old man, you know, that's crap or whatever. Um, I mean, maybe people are thinking it, but uh, I I haven't really heard too much about that. Hmm. Have you you thought about retirement, like when that might happen or what you'd like to look like? um, So right now, uh, I have no plans except to keep working with Iora, uh, you know, forever. And I suppose that retirement comes along and you do that. But I don't know about you. I... I, I can't imagine really not working. Um, yeah, same. I, I am pretty good at, at sort of just, um, y- you know, reading a book and doing little programming things for myself and learning about new things. But I think that I'm so geared to actually producing something mm. that it's hard for me to imagine not having a project. Same. I, I could see my, my relationship to work changing over time and like mm-hmm. wanting to tweak the balance a little bit. Right. Uh, but I get a lot of joy out of coming to work and being with smart people and figuring right. out how we're going to solve things and yeah. shipping, pushing to production. Yeah. It still makes me really, really happy. Yeah. I mean, if you look at a lot of um, the very elderly, you know, the, there's, there's this term called um, the old, old, right? Mm. So, um, you know, people who get to be, say, 85, you know, they're really old. And a lot of the, you know, people who get to be that old, you'll kind of read between the lines of their obituary and you realize that when they do eventually, you know, die, you know, they, but you realize that there's something that they've been doing into late life, you know, mm-hmm. so you'll, you'll read about, oh, you know, a violinist who played up until into their nineties. Um, and that, that's kind of a remarkable thing. So there's, I suppose there's probably some great article that says, if you keep doing that thing that you love, 
it's going to sustain you past a lot of physical infirmity and so forth. Yeah. Well, so we, we talked about Atul Gawande earlier, and mm-hmm. he has a book called Mortality. And they, it's called uh, being, it? being Mortal. Being Mortal. That's a great book. Yeah. I think he touches on some of that. Like You he typically does. see people when they lose whatever their purpose was, that is when they die. Yeah. It's like, oh, you took care of my wife, and then my wife died, and then it's, you know, like, I kind of, my job's gone. Right. So it seems like we have this really deep need for purpose. Right. So it doesn't surprise me. So that that's another reason that. why, uh, as a younger person, you better start building on your self-educating uh, patterns, because um, if you lose something in old age, and you don't have a means to sort of rebuild something fresh or build something off of something that you've lost, I think you put yourself in peril. Hmm. I mean, the last thing I want to do is be watching TV, um, and I just, I just would like to, you know, there's got to be something constructive that I can kind of contribute to. Yeah, I hope. Totally. Yeah, I think so. Can you explain your Twitter handle? So when I was in graduate school, so I, I went to graduate school and got a degree in English and then uh, kind of came back into tech through this sort of circuitous route. Mm-hmm. But um, I was really interested in Henry VIII, and I read all of his letters. And there was this one fellow, Brian Took, who, uh, so my Twitter handle is Took. Uh, Took is also the name of the little skull cap you wear in Montreal. So, hmm. But um, anyway, Brian Took, he was great. I, every now and then you, he'd write this, he'd get this letter from someone saying, hey, you know, Mr. Henry VIII, I think I owe you 10,000 pounds. And Took would intercept the letter and write back and say, you know, um, if you send me 500 pounds, I won't mention it to the king. You know, so, so it was really interesting. He worked kind of as a sort of weird middleman between himself and the king. Huh. And the other thing that was neat about Brian Took is that um, Henry VIII, uh, for a while, had a fistula. You can go look that up. Mm-hmm. And uh, and so did Brian Took. And so they have these funny letters where they're sort of comparing their symptoms. It's really gross, you know. But, uh, mm-hmm. but I just became, you know, really interested in this character and uh, his relationships with the monarch. And uh, he actually has a Wikipedia entry. It's not quite as obscure as it might seem. And so I was looking around for a Twitter handle when you could pick virtually any Twitter handle you want. Yeah. And that was, and I thought I'll pick this because I figured I I don't know about you. Uh, are you you um, you're Rook, right? Uh-huh. So so you have a name also that's uh, you know doesn't divulge that you're you, True. right? Yep. So same here. I figured Twitter, you know. That's going to be a fun handle where I can say horrible things about people if I want to, right? That's not going to be my real per- persona. I see, yeah. Yeah, how things have changed, right? Yeah, right, exactly. It's actually really interesting to me how much of a professional asset Twitter, yeah. or a professional outlet it's become. Yeah. Like, I, I guess if I want it, like, I, I, I tweak what I'm going to put out there because I know the fact that almost all of my audience is people that know me through a professional context. Yeah. Do you use Buffer or anything like that? No. Not yeah. for myself. Okay. Yeah. It's so all live. I'm, I'm terrible at Twitter because it requires me to, you know, boot up TweetDeck and have it kind of over on my other window and sort of kind of looking at it out of the corner of my eye. And I tend to have all notifications turned off yes, on my computer. Absolutely. So, um, so I kind of miss a lot of stuff. So every now and then I'll kind of scroll back through the garbage and just see if there's anything good. And Yeah. But it is interesting. Yeah. It's funny. There was I, I realized I, re, I it basically represents me in a professional context mm-hmm. for all effects. So that's a choice you have to make. Yes, exactly. So mine is sort of a little bit of a mix between, you know, making comments about Ruby or Agile or something, and then saying, "Oh my God, look at this crazy photograph." So mm-hmm. 
I should yeah. probably clean that up a little bit. Yeah, I decided I was okay with the work focus. Like we we linked to that a lot in various like things I published through Thoughtbot. We'll mm-hmm. link to my Twitter handle, and so I realized, you know, I could if I wanted this be this to be a purely personal thing, I could just say draw that line and say that, and then I would just say like, you know, we're not going to link to this as a, like mm-hmm. in my professional context, and that would be okay. But I think it's actually probably Twitter is most useful to me, oddly enough, as a professional tool, more mm-hmm. or less. It lets me connect with the people that are doing what I do. You're probably familiar with the University of Illinois case where a professor tweeted and then. Uh, had his tenure track job offer rescinded, so actually. so that's that's actually kind of a new development in academia where um, there's this expectation somehow that your Twitter your tweets might actually uh, you might be speaking for the university when you don't think you are, or that yep. you said something that's in violation of university policy. Mm-hmm. Um, I th- think that's really sad, uh, and and I think that that particular case is going to he is going to get his job at University of Illinois. But if you look at the chronicle of higher education, it's all over the place. And it's a major area of concern. I mean, you know, in a way, professors should be the most free to tweet any darn thing they want. Mm -hmm. But yeah, it's interesting. I I had a a sort of inflection point where this was a couple years ago, but I remember seeing an email from Dan, actually Dan Croak, saying to somebody that, you know, you're on Twitter, you implicitly represent ThoughtBot. And and like, is that that sort of that I didn't I didn't agree with that exactly at the time, uh, and I was like I could. To me, it was sort of like up to me where if I just if I want I could sort of make a stink about that and say like you know that's totally like we can say what we want all the time like this is my personal expression over here it should not reflect on Thoughtbot, but I, I felt like I couldn't have that cake and also link to it from all of my Thoughtbot work at the same time because mm-hmm. that mm-hmm. is definitely an endorsement when they say this is from at Rook right um, so it was like to me it was like, I could have drawn that line and said you know what I want total freedom over here therefore I'm going to do what I want over here but let's not link to it all the time right um, so. Well, I tend to keep my public discourse on Twitter pretty constrained uh, to engineering issues and um, some sort of personal sort of abstract issues like, uh, you know, I'm, I'm tired or something like that. Mm-hmm. But I would never say it. I, I don't have I don't say things about I, I do will occasionally, you know, circulate a link to say a press release from Iora. But I would never say something disparaging about an Iora competitor or anything like that. Mm-hmm. That's just beyond the pale. Mm-hmm. And that's a personal choice. I mean, I have a lot of stock options, so that's like part of it, right? <laughs> that's right yeah. yeah. You're compensated for that, uh, that mm-hmm. restraint. Yeah. That's excellent. Is there anything that we should cover that we haven't talked about? One thing I want to mention is uh, I think that at Iora on the tech side, so I think we were recently called in some article one of the 10 best uh, medical tech companies in mm-hmm. the Boston area. And again, that's that's a little bit ironic because our business really is primary care. Mm-hmm. And we made a choice to have a big tech stack, but that's not the business. The mm-hmm. business is the, the healthcare. Mm-hmm. But um, growth is really hard. I mean, we still have a very small engineering team. So uh, you know, when we worked with ThoughtBot, we had two employees and two uh, augmented by two people from ThoughtBot. Mm-hmm. And we've used a couple of other contracting um, groups nowhere near the success that we had with you guys. Um, but then, you know, we've hired more people, but we've always stayed tiny. But even with that, uh, the growth pangs going from, say, four people to six people, six people to eight people. And the thing that's really, I, I feel like this is kind of not understood well in the startup world, um, especially when when your company is not a tech company. So in a, te- a lot of tech companies that are startups, they'll grow from um, you know really small to like 100 engineers. Mm. But when tech is a component of another business, you're going to grow a lot slower. But you're still going to be constantly struggling around questions like, um, 
how big can a team be? That yep. alone is it just a huge question. I mean, right now we have three stand-ups uh, successively, each 10 minutes long, one for each of two engineering teams and one for the business and clinical intelligence group. Mm. And just today we were all complaining with each other in a kind of all-team meeting about how we don't now don't know what the other teams are doing. Yeah. And and these are these are hard and um and I think that there's not a lot of guidance in the agile literature about how to deal with growth. I mean, I know there is uh you know, if you take scrum training, there is uh training you can take about how to manage scrums of scrums and that kind of thing, but there's something about the experiential uh growth of of a medium-sized company that is just darn difficult. And uh, I think we've been really successful, but uh, there's been some pain points, a lot of it around things like, um, you know, what is the role of design? Design is a resource that tends to be shared by a lot of engineers, mm -hmm. and getting that right is hard. Um, business and clinical intelligence, so we, we call our business intelligence area business and clinical intelligence to emphasize the importance of care and the data that we manage. Mm -hmm. But in that role, uh, we do a lot of stuff that's really request-based. So someone says, I need this report, and what they really mean is, I need it in two hours. And as, as much as we want to coach them to tell us uh, what they need with a lot of advance warning, we will do that. Mm -hmm. And that really disrupts a lot of the kind of planning that we understand from Agile. And we sort mm -hmm. of grew into this position where we, we started to understand that to be highly responsive, we had to drop some of our ideas about setting up a sprint queue, for example, mm -hmm. because things just have to be done. You know, mm -hmm. business changes every day. Patients change every day. So um, to be responsive, we've had to rewrite some of, the, some of the book on how to have an agile engineering organization. Mm. Uh, Adam Wiggins, the, one of the co-founders of Heroku, mm -hmm. wrote a great post called How to Scale a Development Team. Cool. Uh, which is, he does a really nice job of talking about, he, he breaks it down uh, to different stages. Mm -hmm. So you have a, this many people is you know, yep. stage one, and then stage two happens when you hit roughly this number, and he sort of has these rough inflection points. Right. Uh, it's a great read. We'll we'll link to that in the notes. Cool. And maybe you can also find it too. Yeah, there's also some nice bits from the HubSpot product team that really uh, influenced us and made us rethink some of the things we were doing. Another thing that we read recently is, um, now I'm going to forget his name. He's um, something like the uh, CTO or something like that at Jawbone. And he has this great piece about what's called the um, double diamond. And the idea is that there's one diamond that represents the sort of growth of your discovery process. And then it's not, it's not a handoff, and we don't like handoffs. So that's the kind of thing is to, um, you know, waterfall. But there is this notion that there's a kind of natural growth pattern for the way that you come to define requirements and understand acceptance criteria. And then when that's handed off to the engineering team, then the engineering team is in its own diamond where they are refining a lot of those things and doing things that um, we would understand as uh, cards in an agile process. Mm -hmm. And he's got a great video that kind of goes into this, and I'll send you the link, but okay. I think everyone should take a look at it. Sure, we can definitely link to that. Awesome. Uh, well, I think that's probably a good place to stop. All right, great. Uh, it's been great having you come by and chat. All right. And reconnecting and all that. Cool. Do you have anything you want to plug before you go? You know, Iora is always looking for great engineers. Uh, we would love it if people went to our website, took a look at what we do, and told their friends about it. You know, it's not like we can just open a practice anywhere we want. We work with partners. Mm -hmm. But um, we really like to get the word out that we're a great place to work. Uh, we're providing the best care in North America. 
we have an idea about how this is done mm-hmm. and we're in it for the long haul and remote okay um, some remote work is okay, and in fact, we have positions open now, uh, not so much in engineering, but in things like practice operations where we need people in some of our remote locations. And also, um, you know, hiring physicians is really challenging, hmm. younger physicians especially. So if, there, if you know someone who's awesome and is aligned with our values and reads the Atul Gawande article hmm. and says, oh my God, this is what I want to do. Mm. We, that's the kind of people we would love to talk to. Awesome. Great. Today's show was produced and edited by Tom Obarski. If you'd like to access the show notes for this episode, you can go to giantrobots.fm slash 166. Thanks for listening, and thanks for coming by. 